Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. Third Narrative. Contributed by Franklin Blake. Chapter 1. In the spring of the year 1849, I was wandering in the east and had then recently altered the traveling plans which I had laid out some months before in which I had communicated to my lawyer and my banker in London. This change made it necessary for me to send one of my servants to obtain my letters and remittances from the English council in a certain city which was no longer included as one of my resting places in my new traveling scheme. The man was to join me again at an appointed place in time. An accident for which he was not responsible delayed him on his errand. For a week, I and my people waited, encamped on the borders of a desert. At the end of that time, the missing man made his appearance, with the money and the letters at the entrance of my tent. "'I am afraid I bring you bad news, sir,' he said, "'and pointed to one of the letters, "'which had a mourning border round it, "'and the address on which was in the handwriting of Mr. Bruff. "'I know nothing, in a case of this kind, "'so unendurable as suspense. "'The letter with the mourning border "'was the letter that I opened first. "'It informed me that my father was dead "'and that I was heir to his great fortune.' The wealth, which had thus fallen into my hands, brought it responsibilities with it, and Mr. Bruff entreated me to lose no time in returning to England. By daybreak the next morning, I was on my way back to my own country. The picture presented of me by my old friend Betteridge at the time of my departure from England is, as I think, a little overdrawn, He has, in his own quaint way, interpreted seriously one of his young mistress's many satirical references to my foreign education, and has persuaded himself that he actually saw those French, German, and Italian sides to my character, which my lively cousin only professed to discover in jest, and which never had any real existence, except in our good Betteridge's own brain. But, barring this drawback, I am bound to own that he has stated no more than the truth in representing me as wounded to the heart by Rachel's treatment and as leaving England in the first keenness of suffering caused by the bitterest disappointment of my life. I went abroad resolved, if change and absence could help me, to forget her. It is, I am persuaded, no true view of human nature which denies that change and absence do help a man under these circumstances. They force his attention away from the exclusive contemplation of his own sorrow. I never forgot her, 
but the pang of remembrance lost its worst bitterness little by little as time, distance, and novelty interposed themselves more and more effectually between Rachel and me. On the other hand, it is no less certain that, with the act of turning homeward, the remedy which had gained its ground so steadily began now, just as steadily, to drop back. The nearer I drew to the country which she inhabited and to the prospect of seeing her again, the more irresistibly her influence began to recover its hold on me. On leaving England, she was the last person in the world whose name I would have suffered to pass my lips. On returning to England, she was the first person I inquired after when Mr. Bruff and I met again. I was informed, of course, of all that had happened in my absence— in other words, of all that has been related here in continuation of Betteridge's narrative, one circumstance only being accepted. Mr. Bruff did not, at that time, feel himself at liberty to inform me of the motives which had privately influenced Rachel and Godfrey Abelwhite in recalling the marriage promise on either side. I troubled him with no embarrassing questions on this delicate subject, it was relief enough to me after the jealous disappointment caused by hearing that she had ever contemplated being Godfrey's wife to know that reflection had convinced her of acting rashly and that she effected her own release from her marriage engagement. Having heard the story of the past, my next inquiries, still inquiries after Rachel, advanced naturally to the present time. Under whose care had she been placed after leaving Mr. Bruff's house, "'and where was she living now?' "'She was living under the care of a widowed sister "'of the late Sir John Verinder, "'one Mrs. Meridou, "'whom her mother's executors "'had requested to act as guardian, "'and who had accepted the proposal. "'They were reported to me "'as getting on together admirably well, "'and as being now established for the season "'in Mrs. Meridou's house in Portland Place. "'Half an hour after receiving this information,' I was on my way to Portland Place without having had the courage to own it to Mr. Bruff. The man who answered the door was not sure whether Miss Verinder was at home or not. I sent him upstairs with my card as the speediest way of setting the question at rest. The man came down again with an impenetrable face and informed me that Miss Verinder was out. I might have suspected other people of purposely denying themselves to me, but it was impossible to suspect Rachel. I left word that I would call again at six o'clock that evening. At six o'clock I was informed for the second time that Miss Verinder was not at home. Had any message been left for me? No message had been left for me. Had Miss Verinder not received my card? The servant begged my pardon. Miss Verinder had received it. The inference was too plain to be resisted. Rachel declined to see me. On my side, I declined to be treated in this way without making an attempt, at least, to discover a reason for it. I sent up my name to Mrs. Meridou and requested her to favor me with a personal interview at any hour which it might be most convenient to her to name. Mrs. Meridou made no difficulty about receiving me at once. I was shown into a comfortable little sitting-room and found myself in the presence of a comfortable little elderly lady, she was so good as to feel great regret and much surprise entirely on my account. She was at the same time, however, not in a position to offer me any explanation 
or to press Rachel on a matter which appeared to relate to a question of private feeling alone. This was said over and over again, with a polite patience that nothing could tire, and this was all I gained by applying to Mrs. Meridew. My last chance was to write to Rachel. My servant took a letter to her the next day with strict instructions to wait for an answer. The answer came back literally in one sentence. Miss Verinder begs to decline entering into any correspondence with Mr. Franklin Blake. Fond as I was of her, I felt indignantly the insult offered to me in that reply. Mr. Bruff came in to speak to me on business before I had recovered possession of myself. I dismissed the business on the spot and laid the whole case before him. He proved to be as incapable of enlightening me as Mrs. Meridew herself. I asked him if any slander had been spoken of me in Rachel's hearing. Mr. Bruff was not aware of any slander of which I was the object. Had she referred to me in any way while she was staying under Mr. Bruff's roof? Never. Had she not so much as asked, during all my long absence, whether I was living or dead? No such question had ever passed her lips. I took out of my pocketbook the letter which poor Lady Verinder had written to me from Frizzing Hall on the day when I left her house in Yorkshire, and I pointed Mr. Bruff's attention to these two sentences in it. The valuable assistance which you rendered to the inquiry after the lost jewel is still an unpardoned offense in the present dreadful state of Rachel's mind. Moving blindfold in this matter, you have added to the burden of anxiety which she has had to bear by innocently threatening her secret with discovery through your exertions. Is it possible, I asked, that the feelings towards me which is there described is as bitter as ever against me now? Mr. Broth looked unaffectedly distressed. If you insist on an answer, he said, I own I can place no other interpretation on her conduct than that. I rang the bell and directed my servant to pack my portmanteau and to send out for a railway guide. Mr. Bruff asked in astonishment what I was going to do. I am going to Yorkshire, I answered, by the next train. May I ask for what purpose? Mr. Bruff, the assistance I innocently rendered to the inquiry after the diamond was an unpardoned offense, in Rachel's mind, nearly a year since, and it remains an unpardoned offense still. I won't accept that position. I am determined to find out the secret of her silence towards her mother and her enmity towards me. If time, pains, and money can do it, I will lay my hand on the thief who took the moonstone. The worthy old gentleman attempted to remonstrate, to induce me to listen to reason, to do his duty towards me, in short. I was deaf to everything that he could urge. No earthly consideration would, at that moment, have shaken the resolution that was in me. I shall take up the inquiry again, I went on, at the point where I dropped it, and I shall follow it onwards, step by step, till I come to the present time. There are missing links in the evidence, as I left it, which Gabriel Betteridge can supply, and to Gabriel Betteridge I go. Toward sunset that evening, I stood again on the well-remembered terrace, and looked once more at the peaceful old country house. The gardener was the first person whom I saw in the deserted grounds. He had left Betteridge an hour since, sunning himself in the customary corner of the back yard, 
I knew it well, and I said I would go and seek him myself. I walked round by the familiar paths and passages and looked in at the open gate of the yard. There he was, the dear old friend of the happy days that were never to come again. There he was, in the old corner, on the old beehive chair, with his pipe in his mouth and his Robinson Crusoe on his lap, and his two friends, the dogs, dozing on either side of him. In the position in which I stood, my shadow was projected in front of me by the last slanting rays of the sun. Either the dogs saw it, or their keen scent informed them of my approach. They started up with a growl. Starting in his turn, the old man quieted them by a word, and then shaded his failing eyes with his hand, and looked inquiringly at the figure at the gate. My own eyes were full of tears. I was obliged to wait a moment before I could trust myself to speak to him. Chapter 2 "'Betteridge,' I said, pointing to the well-remembered book on his knee, "'has Robinson Crusoe informed you this evening "'that you might expect to see Franklin Blake?' "'By the Lord, Harry, Mr. Franklin,' cried the old man, "'that's exactly what Robinson Crusoe has done.' "'He struggled to his feet with my assistance "'and stood for a moment, looking backwards and forwards "'between Robinson Crusoe and me, "'apparently at a loss to discover which of us "'had surprised him most.' The verdict ended in favor of the book. Holding it open before him in both hands, he surveyed the wonderful volume with a stare of unutterable anticipation, as if he expected to see Robinson Crusoe himself walk out of the pages and favor us with a personal interview. "'Here's the bit, Mr. Franklin,' he said, as soon as he had recovered the use of his speech. "'As I live by bread, sir, here's the bit I was reading, the moment before you came in.' page 156, as follows. I stood like one thunderstruck, or as if I had seen an apparition. If that isn't as much as to say, expect the sudden appearance of Mr. Franklin Blake, there's no meaning in the English language, said Betteridge, closing the book with a bang, and getting one of his hands free at last to take the hand which I offered him. I had expected him, naturally enough, under the circumstances, to overwhelm me with questions. But no, the hospitable impulse was the uppermost impulse in the old servant's mind when a member of the family appeared, no matter how, as a visitor at the house. "'Walk in, Mr. Franklin,' he said, opening the door behind him, with his quaint old-fashioned bow. "'I'll ask what brings you here afterwards. I must make you comfortable first. "'There have been sad changes since you went away. "'The house is shut up, and the servants are gone. Never mind that.' "'I'll cook your dinner, and the gardener's wife will make your bed, "'and if there's a bottle of our famous Latour Claret left in the cellar, "'down your throat, Mr. Franklin, that bottle shall go. "'I bid you welcome, sir, I bid you heartily welcome,' "'said the poor old fellow, fighting manfully against the gloom of the deserted house, "'and receiving me with the sociable and courteous attention of the bygone time. "'It vexed me to disappoint him.' "'But the house was Rachel's house now. "'Could I eat in it or sleep in it "'after what had happened in London? "'The commonest sense of self-respect forbade me, "'properly forbade me, to cross the threshold. "'I took Betteridge by the arm "'and led him out into the garden. "'There was no help for it. "'I was obliged to tell him the truth. "'Between his attachment to Rachel "'and his attachment to me, 
he was sorely puzzled and distressed at the turn things had taken. His opinion, when he expressed it, was given in his usual downright manner, and was agreeably redolent of the most positive philosophy I know, the philosophy of the Betteridge School. "'Miss Rachel has her faults. I've never denied it,' he began, "'and riding the high horse, now and then, is one of them. "'She's been trying to ride over you, and you've put up with it. "'Lord, Mr. Franklin, don't you know women by this time better than that? "'You've heard me talk of the late Mrs. Betteridge.' "'I had heard him talk of the late Mrs. Betteridge pretty often. "'Very well, Mr. Franklin, now listen to me. "'Different women have different ways of riding the high horse. "'The late Mrs. Betteridge took her exercise on that favorite female animal "'whenever I happened to deny her anything that she had set her heart on. "'So sure as I came home from my work on these occasions, "'so sure was my wife to call to me up the kitchen stairs, "'and to say that, after my brutal treatment of her, "'she hadn't the heart to cook me my dinner. "'I put up with it for some time, "'just as you are putting up with it now from Miss Rachel.' At last, my patience wore out. I went downstairs, and I took Mrs. Betteridge, affectionately, you understand, up in my arms and carried her into the best parlor where she received her company. I said, "'That's the right place for you, my dear,' and so went back to the kitchen. I locked myself in and took off my coat and turned up my shirt sleeves and cooked my own dinner. When it was done, I served it up in my best manner, "'and enjoyed it most heartily. "'I had my pipe and my drop of grog afterwards, "'and then I cleared the table and washed the crockery "'and cleaned the knives and forks "'and put the things away and swept up the hearth. "'When things were as bright and clean again "'as bright and clean could be, "'I opened the door and let Mrs. Betteridge in. "'I've had my dinner, my dear,' I said, "'and I hope you will find that I've left the kitchen "'all that your fondest wishes can desire.' For the rest of that woman's life, Mr. Franklin, I never had to cook my dinner again. Moral, you have to put up with Miss Rachel in London. Don't put up with her in Yorkshire. Come back to the house. Quite unanswerable, I could only assure my good friend that even his powers of persuasion were, in this case, thrown away on me. It's a lovely evening, I said. I shall walk to Frizzing Hall and stay at the hotel... "'and you must come tomorrow morning and breakfast with me. "'I have something to say to you.' "'Betteridge shook his head gravely. "'I am heartily sorry for this,' he said. "'I had hoped, Mr. Franklin, "'to hear that things were all smooth and pleasant again "'between you and Miss Rachel. "'If you must have your own way, sir,' he continued, "'after a moment's reflection, "'there is no need to go to Frizzing Hall tonight for a bed. "'It's to be had nearer than that. "'There's Hotherstone's farm, barely two miles from here.' "'You can hardly object to that on Miss Rachel's account,' the old man added slyly. "'Hotherstone lives, Mr. Franklin, on his own freehold.' "'I remembered the place the moment Betteridge mentioned it. "'The farmhouse stood in a sheltered inland valley "'on the banks of the prettiest stream in that part of Yorkshire, "'and the farmer had a spare bedroom and parlour "'which he was accustomed to let to artists, anglers, and tourists in general.' A more agreeable place of abode during my stay in the neighborhood I could not have wished to find. Are the rooms to let? I inquired. Mrs. Hotherstone herself, sir, asked for my good word to recommend the rooms yesterday. I'll take them, Betteridge, with the greatest pleasure. We went back to the yard in which I had left my traveling bag. 
After putting a stick through the handle and swinging the bag over his shoulder, Betteridge appeared to relapse into the bewilderment which my sudden appearance had caused when I surprised him in the beehive chair. He looked incredulously at the house, and then he wheeled about and looked more incredulously still at me. "'I've lived a goodish long time in the world,' said this best and dearest of all old servants. "'But the like of this I never did expect to see. "'There stands the house, and here stands Mr. Franklin Blake. "'And damn, if one of them isn't turning his back on the other "'and going to sleep in a lodging.' "'He led the way out, wagging his head and growling ominously. "'There's only one more miracle that can happen,' he said to me over his shoulder— "'The next thing you'll do, Mr. Franklin, "'will be to pay me back that seven and sixpence "'you borrowed of me when you were a boy.' "'This stroke of sarcasm put him in a better humor "'with himself and with me. "'We left the house and passed through the lodge gates. "'Once clear of the grounds, "'the duties of hospitality in Betteridge's code of morals ceased, "'and the privileges of curiosity began. "'He dropped back so as to let me get on a level with him.' "'Fine evening for a walk, Mr. Franklin,' he said, "'as if we had just accidentally encountered each other at that moment. "'Supposing you had gone to the hotel at Frizzing Hall, sir. "'Yes. "'I should have had the honor of breakfasting with you tomorrow morning. "'Come and breakfast with me at Hotherstone's farm instead. "'Much obliged to you for your kindness, Mr. Franklin, "'but it wasn't exactly breakfast that I was driving at. "'I think you mentioned that you had something to say to me.' "'If it's no secret, sir,' said Betteridge, "'suddenly abandoning the crooked way "'and taking the straight one, "'I'm burning to know what's brought you down here, "'if you please, in this sudden way. "'What brought me here before?' I asked. "'The Moonstone, Mr. Franklin. "'But what brings you now, sir? "'The Moonstone again, Betteridge. "'The old man suddenly stood still "'and looked at me in the grey twilight "'as if he suspected his own ears of deceiving him.' "'If that's a joke, sir,' he said, "'I'm afraid I'm getting a little dull in my old age. "'I don't take it.' "'It's no joke,' I answered. "'I've come here to take up the inquiry "'which was dropped when I left England. "'I've come here to do what nobody has done yet, "'to find out who took the diamond. "'Let the diamond be, Mr. Franklin. "'Take my advice and let the diamond be. "'That cursed Indian jewel has misguided everybody "'who has come near it.' "'Don't waste your money and your temper "'in the fine springtime of your life, sir, "'by meddling with the moonstone. "'How can you hope to succeed, saving your presence, "'when Sergeant Cuff himself made a mess of it?' "'Sergeant Cuff,' repeated Betteridge, "'shaking his forefinger at me sternly, "'the greatest policeman in England. "'My mind is made up, my old friend. "'Even Sergeant Cuff doesn't daunt me. "'By the by,' "'I may want to speak to him sooner or later. "'Have you heard anything of him lately?' "'The sergeant won't help you, Mr. Franklin. "'Why not? "'There has been an event, sir, in the police circles since you went away. "'The great Cuff has retired from business. "'He's got a little cottage at Dorking, "'and he's up to his eyes in the growing of roses. "'I have it in his own handwriting, Mr. Franklin. "'He has grown the white moss rose "'without budding it on the dog rose first. And Mr. Begby, the gardener, is to go to Dorking and own that the sergeant has beaten him at last. It doesn't much matter, I said. I must do without Sergeant Cuff's help, and I must trust to you at starting. 
it is likely enough that I spoke rather carelessly. At any rate, Bedford seemed to be piqued by something in the reply which I had just made to him. "'You might trust to worse than me, Mr. Franklin. I can tell you that,' he said a little sharply. The tone in which he retorted, and a certain disturbance after he had spoken, which I detected in his manner, suggested to me that he was possessed of some information which he hesitated to communicate. "'I expect you to help me,' I said, "'in picking up the fragments of evidence "'which Sergeant Cuff has left behind him. "'I know you can do that. "'Can you do no more?' "'What more can you expect from me, sir?' "'asked Betteridge, with an appearance "'of the utmost humility. "'I expect more from what you said just now.' "'Mere boasting, Mr. Franklin,' returned the old man. "'Some people are born boasters, "'and they never get over it to their dying day. "'I'm one of them.' There was only one way to take with him. I appealed to his interest in Rachel and his interest in me. Betteridge, would you be glad to hear that Rachel and I were good friends again? I have served your family, sir, to mighty little purpose, if you doubt it. Do you remember how Rachel treated me before I left England? As well as if it was yesterday, my lady herself wrote you a letter about it, and you were so good as to show the letter to me.' It said that Miss Rachel was mortally offended with you for the part you had taken in trying to recover her jewel, and neither my lady nor you nor anybody else could guess why. Quite true, Betteridge, and I come back from my travels to find her mortally offended with me still. I knew that the diamond was at the bottom of it last year, and I know that the diamond is at the bottom of it now. I have tried to speak to her, and she won't see me. I have tried to write to her, and she won't answer me. How in heaven's name am I to clear the matter up? The chance of searching into the loss of the moonstone is the one chance of inquiry that Rachel herself has left me. Those words evidently put the case before him, as he had not seen it yet. He asked a question which satisfied me that I had shaken him. There is no ill feeling in this, Mr. Franklin, on your side, is there? "'There was some anger,' I answered, when I left London, "'but that is all worn out now. "'I want to make Rachel come to an understanding with me, "'and I want nothing more. "'You don't feel any fear, sir, "'supposing you make any discoveries "'in regard to what you may find out about Miss Rachel.' "'I understood the jealous belief in his young mistress "'which prompted those words. "'I am as certain of her as you are,' I answered. "'The fullest disclosure of her secret,' will reveal nothing that can alter her place in your estimation or in mine. Betteridge's last left scruples vanished at that. If I am doing wrong to help you, Mr. Franklin, he exclaimed, all I can say is I am as innocent of seeing it as the babe unborn. I can put you on the road to discovery if you can only go on by yourself. You remember that poor girl of ours, Rosanna Spearman. Of course. You always thought she had some sort of confession in regard to this matter of the moonstone, which she wanted to make to you. I certainly couldn't account for her strange conduct in any other way. You may set that doubt at rest, Mr. Franklin, whenever you please. It was my turn to come to a standstill now. I tried vainly in the gathering darkness to see his face. In the surprise of the moment, I asked a little impatiently what he meant. Steady, sir proceeded Betteridge. I mean what I say. Rosanna Spearman left a sealed letter behind her, a letter addressed to you. 
Where is it? In the possession of a friend of hers at Cobb's Hole. You must have heard tell, when you were here last, sir, of limping Lucy, a lame girl with a crutch, the fisherman's daughter, the same, Mr. Franklin. Why wasn't the letter forwarded to me? Limping Lucy has a will of her own, sir. She wouldn't give it into any hands but yours, and you had left England before I could write to you. Let's go back, Betteridge, and get it at once. Too late, sir, tonight. They're great savers of candles along our coast, and they go to bed early at Cobb's Hole. Nonsense. We might get there in half an hour. You might, sir, and when you did get there, you would find the door locked. He pointed to a light glimmering below us, and at the same moment I heard through the stillness of the evening the bubbling of a stream. There's the farm, Mr. Franklin. Make yourself comfortable for tonight, and come to me tomorrow morning, if you'll be so kind. You will go with me to the fisherman's cottage. Yes, sir. Early? As early, Mr. Franklin, as you like. We descended the path that led to the farm. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.